This is Macro Horizons, Episode 74, Bonds of Summer, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of June 22nd. As the season officially slips into summer, we're content to leave spring 2020 behind, but it was one to be remembered. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market had a fair amount of information to digest. We had stronger than expected reads from the Empire State Manufacturing Survey, as well as Philly Fed. We also had a very strong retail sales print. Now, this is consistent with the notion that the economic data hit a bottom in April, and as the economy continues to reopen and move toward the new normal, we're starting to see the economic data normalize as well. It's important to keep in mind that this normalization is occurring off of very weak levels. And as a result, the upside surprises should be taken in that context. The treasury market appears to appreciate this dynamic. And as a result, we're not surprised to see 10-year yields continuing to maintain a range that's been in place for a very long time. While it's not a particularly exciting treasury market to be trading, it is the realities that we face, and given the Fed's commitment to keep rates on hold for the foreseeable future, think years, not quarters, it follows intuitively that we'll be in a range trading environment, at least throughout the summer months. We had a reasonably successful takedown of the 20-year auction, which bodes well for treasuries as an asset class. But one of the broader themes at this point in the pandemic remains the outperformance of risk assets, most notably the domestic equity market. The continued upside in U.S. stocks is difficult to fade, particularly given the amount of monetary policy accommodation and fiscal stimulus that has been delivered from Washington over the course of the last quarter. For the time being, we're very content with the two primary themes that are in place, slow grind higher in risk assets with a sideways shuffle in treasury yields. Do keep in mind that the summer months have historically been characterized by low volumes and limited conviction. However, given the pandemic of 2020, we're not looking for history to be guide in this particular summer. Instead, investors will continue to monitor the incoming COVID-19 stats with a nod to the success or challenges facing the regions that are in the process of reopening. The summertime has also historically been a period during which stocks struggle. Now, the classic adage, sell in May and go away, has not proved itself thus far in 2020. However, the seasonal tendencies combined with the outperformance of stocks versus bonds, which will lead to some rebalancing issues at the end of the quarter, points to a particularly vulnerable period over the course of the next couple weeks as the quarter comes to an end. 
So Ben, how's that 20-year auction? Strong. Strong like retail sales. And really, the biggest takeaway from the first reopening of 20s ever was that despite ostensibly low yields, only 131 basis points for 20 years, the fact that we saw such a large stop through at not even the yield highs for 20s really must be encouraging for those in Washington who are tasked with rolling out this new bond. Sure, yields did back up from last month's first auction, roughly 10 basis points or so. But really, to me, the biggest takeaway was that as liquidity gets built out in the new bond, the value of these auctions is really going to be quite high. And one has to think there's going to be many in the market who are going to look to the Treasury's offered liquidity as a way to establish pretty sizable positions in the new benchmark. I think it's fairly safe to say that in terms of rolling out a new product, that this was a success for the Treasury Department, and it'll be interesting to see how the auction schedule develops going forward. But let's return quickly to the economic data. It was a week in which we saw a series of surprisingly strong releases, retail sales being one, the Empire State Manufacturing Survey being another, and Philly Fed as well. All of this conforms to the narrative that April marked the lows for the recession, and as expectations were dropped rather dramatically for the balance of the quarter, we've seen releases outperform. Now, this has brought the U.S. Economic Surprise Index to record high levels. Record high levels for the surprise index doesn't mean record strong data by any means. It simply implies that the very subdued expectations for the second quarter were perhaps incrementally overdone. One of the things that we've been contemplating insofar as the third quarter is In the event that the realities of the depths of the recession are slightly less than initially feared, what does that mean for investors' interpretation of all of the policy stimulus that the Fed has delivered and what has come out of Washington on the fiscal side? I wouldn't make the case that they've overdone it by any means. However, it does speak to the upward pressure that we continue to see on risk assets with treasury yields in a remarkably contained range. Ian, you hit on something that I think is one of the most important things going on right now in the economic data, that it is going to be absolutely essential to keep changes versus levels separate in your mind. So if we go to that Empire survey or Philly Fed survey, the way those surveys are constructed, it simply asks, was this month better than the prior month? Or on a forward basis, do you think it'll be better in six months than now? It's not saying, are things good? It's literally just relative to what it was before. So some of these huge beats we're seeing in some of these surveys is literally just manufacturers coming out and saying, hey, this past month was better than a full-scale lockdown. It doesn't mean that we're getting a V-shaped recovery or a snap massively higher. All it means is that things have incrementally improved. And that is where I think we really need to pivot when thinking about things is that the recovery is going to be ongoing. Things are slowly going to get better. They are getting better. We can see that in a variety of the data. But the way some of these surveys are constructed, it can be extremely misleading. Having responses saying that we think that things are going to be better in six months than they were in the midst of a government-enforced lockdown is a super low bar to clear and one that we're seeing show up in the underlying survey data. 
A version of that dynamic can also be seen in the data outside of the surveys. For example, retail sales that came in up 17.7% in the month of May benefited from the base effects simply because it was such a big drop in the prior month or two. So that means it's essential to look at the dollar level of spending, comparable to the way one might be well advised to discount the survey data as well. Yeah, I think another great example of that is the latest NFP figures. Even though it was a 2.5 million increase, that still is just bringing back one-tenth or so of the jobs that were lost in the prior two months. So 2.5 million change, everything's exciting, rates up, equities up. However, we're still off almost 20 million jobs after that big boost. That's a little bit more concerning. And to me, that's the underlying tension right now in the market, is it's a bit of a Rorschach test. If you want to be optimistic, you can find reasons to be optimistic. The economic surprise index is great. A bunch of data coming out is great. Places are reopening. Stocks are going towards highs. There are a lot of reasons for optimism. However, if you want to be pessimistic, it's not too hard to find that. So you kind of get this push and pull dynamic that seems to have equated to a range bound trading paradigm and 10 year yields, making it really difficult to get too far away from that 70 to 75 basis point zone. And circling back to how this ultimately will shake out. Ian, you touched on it earlier, but something else that's going to increasingly enter the conversation as summer commences and fall approaches, in my mind, will be the direction of inflation. I think all of us are on the same page that the Fed hasn't overdone it. However, if in fact the recovery ends up being a bit more aggressive than was expected, you couple that with the stimulus that Powell and Congress has provided, it's not a huge leap to expect some upside pressure in inflation. And circling back to the auctions of this past week, The five-year tips reopening was met with really strong demand, despite the lowest yield since August 2013, at negative 75 basis points. So the fact that you have investors willing to come in and pay up for such low inflation-adjusted yield suggests to me, at the very least, that real rates are going to stay low for a long time and may even push lower. Last cycle, we saw five-year real yields reach negative 178. That's a full percentage point from where we are right now. On the tips thing, one background dynamic I'd point out is it's going to be really hard to actually measure any inflationary impulse for households. And one intuitive way to think about this is, you know, I think all of our consumption patterns have changed pretty substantially over the past two, three, four months. Now, the question is, are the CPI baskets being adjusted substantially in real time in order to reflect that? If so, that's a very difficult thing to do to get precision on in order to get a robust read on what underlying inflation is for households. And it's a difficult thing that they'll have to unwind when the reopenings happen. So I would just add that as yet another example of the difficulty of trying to measure all this correctly. And let us not forget that even before the pandemic, the Fed was struggling to generate demand-side inflation. We did see asset price inflation, but that's a different issue. So if we actually find ourselves in a situation later this year or into 2021 where there's been demonstrated upward pressure on consumer prices, that's a win for the Fed. And it will help make sure that medium and longer-term inflation expectations do not lose the anchor. On that, Ian, if we do start to see upward pressure on consumer prices, the most important thing to watch is going to be inflation expectations. I agree with you that the Fed would absolutely welcome some upward pressure on prices, 
But just as they're concerned about losing control of expectations to the downside, they wouldn't hike and wouldn't tighten financial conditions in response to some upward pressure in consumer prices as long-run expectations are well anchored. So in that state of the world, it'll be a tricky balance to say, hey, we have some short-term upward pressure, but as long as everyone still believes that it'll be about 2% in the long run, we keep rates at zero. If you start to see break-evens accelerate higher, survey-based measures accelerate higher, then Powell's in a tricky position where he might actually have to start signaling that hikes are coming. The one nuance that I would add to that is a lot of it is ultimately going to come down to the labor market. So envisioning a world where there's upward pressure on inflation, but the unemployment rate is still 8 9%, it will be very difficult for the Fed to even hint that tightening may be in the offing even years ahead. Well, that would be back to the 1970s stagflation dynamic. And obviously, the modern global economy is very different than before. But the Volcker Fed did show a willingness to hike rates to make sure that inflation is under control. It's really not a problem that the FOMC has had to deal with for several decades. But were that to occur, I don't see it as outside the realm of possibility that they would fight upside inflation pretty aggressively. To be clear, I don't think that we're going to see large-scale stagflation by any means. But it is something that seems to be increasingly on investors' minds. Well, and when we think about stagflation during the 70s, we have to keep in mind that the labor force had a decidedly different composition. Unions had much more strength and there was more collective bargaining power at play. Remember COLA, cost of living adjustments? Those are long gone, at least outside of Social Security. And as a result, the upward pressure on wages is going to be more a function of the strength of the economy and less a function of supply-side shocks like energy that we saw in the 70s. But to your point, John, I think it's very topical and an issue that will remain on investors' minds as the economy slowly starts to heal. And turning back to the price action, it is a bit unfortunate to say we now find ourselves back in a range. Ian, was 96 basis points the most excitement summer will hold? It certainly appears that the 96 basis point peak for 10-year yields will represent the upper bound for the time being. Recall, it was that much stronger than expected non-farm payrolls print that led to this steepening sell-off that got 10-year yields almost to 1%. As we look forward to the next several months, it's challenging to envision a situation where the market would be so surprised as to warrant a repricing of that significance. That's not to say that we won't continue to see upside pressure in equity prices. I think that establishing record highs for the S&P 500 this year, while it might have seemed completely incomprehensible when we were in the depths of the market crash in March, at this point, one could argue it's almost starting to become consensus. One of the things that we've managed to make it this far without referencing is the fact that the COVID-19 cases have been on the rise in the U.S., specifically certain states, Florida, Texas, and Arizona have seen market increases, which brought second wave concerns back onto the radar. Now, I've been surprised that risk assets only temporarily retraced on the headlines of the risk of a second wave, and we've seen prices steadily grind back toward the pre-second wave peaks. And the price response to what could be called the second wave of COVID-19 reflects not necessarily the increase in cases, 
but rather the probability that certain locations will be forced to relock down. Risk assets at these levels seem to reflect a skepticism that that will be required. However, in the event cases begin to accelerate outside of just those states, it will be a risk to be mindful of, even if a low probability at this stage. Well, when I think of the risks of the second wave, they're twofold. One is the probability of a full government-mandated lockdown, similar to what we saw over the past few months. That's really low. The political and social bar in order to re-implement that seems extremely high, and very few elected officials are going to want to do that. The other risk is that you do start to see increased viral outbreaks, and that is a substantial headwind and drag on consumption, on spending, and you see the economy bounce back, call it to something like 80-90% of it was before, rather than 95% or something. That alone would slow the recovery, keeping unemployment higher, inflationary pressure lower, and lead to something like an L-shaped or swoosh-shaped recovery, rather than some of the optimistic V-shaped recoveries that are being implied by some of the latest data. Clear takeaway is that it will be an interesting summer. A summer to remember? Or a summer to forget. Just summer. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will benefit from a few meaningful inputs, including existing home sales and new home sales. Given the downside illustrated in April's data, the May prints will be informative as investors look to better gauge the state of the domestic real estate market. Let us not forget that we have twos, fives, and sevens in terms of supply at 46, 47, and $41 billion, respectively. And while it is the last full trading week of June, the quarter officially winds down the following week, and so we expect any month-end duration demand will be delayed. Watch for durable goods, advanced trade, and of course, the personal income and spending figures for May all of which will help further estimate the depth of the recession and will help contribute to estimates of how quickly the U.S. economy can recover. In terms of what this means for trading in the Treasury market, our core tenants remain in place. The front end of the curve will be anchored to monetary policy expectations. Given that the Fed has confirmed that they have no intention of raising rates anytime soon, certainly not before 2023, it's safe to say the twos below 20 basis points could prove the preferred habitat for the time being. This notion is reinforced further by the prospects for yield curve control at some point. Again, we don't think that yield curve control becomes a reality this summer, but after the election, as the year winds down, if the U.S. economy has underperformed expectations, yield curve control could be back on the Fed's radar. We see no compelling reason at the moment to attempt to fade the trading range that's been in place in the 10-year sector. In and around 65 to 75 basis points appears to be the near-term confines, although 54 to 95 basis points is the real range and the range that we expect will require a paradigm shift of the macro narrative to truly challenge. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't see a backup in yields as a result of positive economic data if the incoming May releases confirm that April was the low. Nonetheless, in this environment, the shape of the yield curve has devolved into simply a directional trade. Bear steepening, bull flattening as a function of the data, and of course, as a function of the ongoing success or challenges faced by the reopening efforts. 
Attention will continue to be paid to the COVID-19 stats, particularly those coming out of Florida, Texas, and Arizona, given the recent spike in infections. Beyond that, we expect that attention will shift to the June non-farm payrolls print released on the 2nd of July. In light of the surprisingly strong May figures, it's difficult to imagine that there won't be a positive skew on the part of investors as the quarter comes to an end and progress is made to re-engage the U.S. labor force. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as we watch the sideways shuffle in tins, we can safely conclude the range is strong with this one. Baby Yoda, best Yoda. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.